Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin, here today with Chris Magwood and Jacob Rakusen. I am super excited to dig in here. Today, we're going to be talking about wood and probably other biogenic building materials. If you don't know what biogenic is, just sit tight. Yeah, we're going to be talking about wood as a building material and uh, try to put that in context for us in a kind of a subtle way. So, but first introductions. So for some of us, um, Chris Magwood might not need an introduction, but Chris, welcome. Uh, please introduce yourself. Tell us how you came to be who you are. Sure. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks a lot for, uh, for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. I guess I'm here because almost 30 years ago, my partner at the time and I decided that we needed to build ourselves a house and it needed to be uh, something we could do ourselves, needed to be uh, affordable, needed to be energy efficient, a whole bunch of things. And we spent a couple of years looking at various ways we could do that. And we settled on building a straw bale house, which yeah. ended up uh, being the first permitted straw bale house in uh, Ontario, Canada during the process of which we made every possible owner builder mistake it's possible to make. And then all the additional ones that you make because you're working with a material that nobody in your area has ever worked with before. So, you know, it was a, it was an extraordinary learning experience. And, and what came out of that was I loved this material. I loved uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy systems and then people kind of just started knocking on our door, which was in the middle of nowhere. So somehow, you know, people found us also were attracted to all of these ideas and started asking me to come and help them do this. And, you know, that kind of spun quickly from having some chats with people to teaching at some workshops to starting to, to build houses. And, uh, and so it's been a sort of, interesting career in being really uh, excited by innovative materials, being really keen to try try things out that felt to me like really good ideas. I guess because I had done this straw bale thing that, you know, 95% of people told me was crazy to do, but it worked really well. And it, you know, I could tell that inherently that approach had value. And so I was maybe not so scared to try other things that seemed, you know, crazy as a notion, whether it's like an earth bag foundation or a rammed earth system or using earth filled tires or, you know, whatever it happens to be. It was like, yeah, I see how that could work. And I see how I could put a bunch of, you know, building experience and knowledge to work to sort of make that work well. And so I've had a really interesting career as a designer builder doing really cool projects. Along the way, I got really interested in metrics in how, you know, when my partner and I set out to do this, like, we wanted to do all of these things really well, like, 
you know, we wanted to be really energy efficient. We wanted to make no waste. We wanted all our materials to come locally. But we are also doing that at the start of sort of the 90s green building slash green wash explosion, where suddenly, you know, every product on the market was being marketed as green. And, and we, we definitely did some of that, like, run to the shiny green object um, kind of <laughs> approach. And we're, you know, disappointed and upset by some of the things that we found when we, you know, did the green thing or bought the green thing. And so, you know, right from the get go, I wanted to measure stuff like, okay, you know, how, how is this better, you know, and, and against what metrics is it better? And so, you know, the whole, my whole career was, was really um, trying to figure that out. Like, what are the metrics that I can measure this by and then measure it and then see, you know, how did it work? And I guess the, I'm, I'm circling along uh, the, the, the long way to sort of talk about what people sort of identify me with now is embodied carbon. And really, I came to that the same way I came to all those other metrics. It's like, oh, this is something that seems important, and I should know how to measure it. And so, you know, in 20, I think it was 2011, I was like, I'm just going to measure the carbon footprint of all the materials for our next building project. And it was going to be this really easy thing, and I was just going to do it. And we'd have an answer and we'd move on. And it turns out that at that point, it was not so straightforward to measure that. And it's been, you know, almost a 13 year like rabbit hole that I've kept going down because it's, it's really interesting to figure out how to measure this. And it's really, you know, it's complex to measure it and it's really important to measure it. And so, yeah, I've been spending all my time uh, or most of my time, professional time, trying to you know figure that out and uh, and share with people what I've learned along the way. Well, that's a good one. So, and along the way, you were uh, involved with the Endeavor Center, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that our building practice turned into a building school. So for 15 years, we sort of built buildings, but with students as our kind of labor force slash, you know, students. And so they were really getting to see these projects from the ground up. Um, and I should probably mention that I'm now actually with uh, RMI, the Rocky Mountain Institute, Yay. where, you know, they're really uh, being super great in supporting, you know, all my interest in uh, embodied carbon and in particular sort of carbon storage in building materials. Fantastic. So we'll get to you in just one second, Jacob. I, I, just, I just want to mention Amory Lovins as a, I'm sure so many of us were deeply influenced by him and his many of his books. Reinventing Fire just caught me on fire. It was amazing. Your books, Chris, um, fantastic. Uh, for those listeners that don't know, there's something called the Sustainable Building Essentials series, and I really think those are essential. And they are not just for, um, well, they are for people who want to build sustainably, which undoubtedly is all of us. And, you know, Bruce King, I kind of met you through there and Build Beyond Zero. But before that, the new carbon architecture, I think you were rolled into that somehow. Yeah. Yeah, it's tremendous, tremendous. Uh, we did interview Bruce a while back, but now let's come to Jacob Rakusen. Okay, so the floor is yours, Jacob. How did you uh, arrive to be doing what you're doing now? And what are you doing now? Yeah, um, thanks. It is a serious honor to be uh, to be with you all. Well, I'll start with what I'm doing now and then uh, rewind back to the, to the get. So I kind of wear two hats. Um, uh, I am the director of building science and sustainability for new frameworks, which is a design build and fabrication worker owned co-op here in Vermont. Um, and I also am a sort of 
co-developer and trainer uh, with uh, for the Beam tool with Builders for Climate Action. So I started uh, actually not not terribly dissimilarly from Chris as an owner builder. I had a really young family. Uh, I started my family when I was 19, and um, when I was 20, we bought a abandoned farm in the mountains of northern Vermont right along the Canadian border and moved straight into wow. um, owner building and developing a permaculture homestead living the living the idealist 20 year old sustainable off-grid dream so yeah my, my foray into the world of building my actually my, my prior love and passion was in sustainable agriculture regenerative agriculture and food justice that was my my first love. Um, and then initially building was just sort of a, a means to an end. It was the infrastructure required to be able to sort of have this lifestyle and live, you know, live in the place we want to live. Um, and I really fell in love with building kind of, uh, you know, roughly halfway through. So we did the whole cut the trees down from the woods and mill the frame. And um, it, our approach was also straw bale. It was, one, it was not by no means the first straw bale in uh, Vermont, they're I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of other giants and trailblazers in that work. Um, but it was one of the first, like sort of formally high performance straw bale buildings. It was the first like honest attempt at air sealing and uh, addressing the junctions between plaster and wood transitions and, and so on and so forth. So um, yeah, I, I got really excited having this very deep relationship with materials and seeing their potential and the opportunity to create these really high performance outcomes. Um, and so, yeah, from building my house, I really fell in love with the, with the process and the craft of construction, the relationships developed with sourcing these materials. And uh, I did a bunch of work teaching and building through the Yes Tomorrow Design Build School, um, not entirely dissimilar from Endeavor in terms of some um, sort of like design, build, real projects, but in, the, in an educational context. And so, so teaching at the same time that New Frameworks was developing, Ace McCarlton, my business partner, started New Frameworks um, back in oh. 2006, I believe, um, with a different business partner, Chloe Giangiani, who has since moved out of the trades. Um, I was sort of a, a you know, plasterer for hire, bail builder for hire. Um, There's a very small group of us doing this work in, New, in, in uh, Vermont and New England. And so um, after a number of years operating my own, I wanted a real company to join with. And Ace and I connected very strongly around a shared vision for sort of transformational change in the building industry. And so we really connected through that. I joined New Frameworks. Um, that work of sort of, you know, primarily construction and sort of de facto design build a new construction natural building um, after the recession pivoted a bit and uh, we got uh, we realized we were not meeting our social or ecological mandates, only building new buildings. And there was a bit of a disruption in the in the new construction industry. Um, so I got trained up in uh, more of the nuts and bolts of building science to start approaching the existing built environment and started really getting into building energy retrofits in existing buildings became sort of the next uh, really major focus for me. Oh, fantastic. And that was a that 
that work really grew sort of grew out uh, sort of weatherization and sort of uh, performance division of our company at the same time that the new building was continuing. And we were, I got trained as a or certified as a passive house consultant and really got into the energy side of things and were really focusing on energy and mechanicals. I kind of became that nerd for the team and both the new builds and the uh, and the retrofit side. Uh, a good uh, dear friend and early collaborator of ours, Ben Graham, who was doing a lot of the designs for us, joined New Frameworks, and we formally became a design builds company with an actual design department. So I started doing more consulting and really the formal design work of enclosure and mechanical system design. And um, right in the middle there through the teens um, is when I kind of caught Chris's fire about uh, embodied carbon being able to apply metrics. We've been talking about the carbon storage value of straw since like, the early 2000s, but then yeah. the University of Bath released the ICE database and we're like, ooh, numbers, look, we can quantify this, like this is a thing. Um, and it became a really exciting opportunity to really kind of come full circle, you know, after getting super into the metrics um, around energy and the applied metrics of building performance and being able to start kind of going the other way, we'd already done the apl application of low carbon carbon storing materials and then be able to bring some data to it. And, um, yeah, I'd say that path has just continued to unfold and unwind. I've been working more under the mentorship of Andy Shapiro with Energy Balance. I've been working and learning more about commercial and sort of multifamily construction, non-residential building, kind of in all those realms. And the, the, the really strong need and interest and desire, all three of those things kind of um, culminating together in the industry around materials and material science and embodied carbon um, has just made it easier to spend a lot more time and focus um, researching and, and you know, working on the beam tool and kind of continuing to move further in that direction. Yeah, I'll pause there. That's the, that's one of the highlights there. Yeah. That's great. And for, yeah, and there's, it's funny, like one of my favorite TV shows growing up was uh, James Burke Connections on PBS. And you know, there's so oh. many things you just said, like just the business structure that you talked about, the cooperative. The oh, yeah. <laughs> So by the way, listeners, this is going to be an 18-hour interview. Um, we're going to have lots of coffee. It just seems like, but no, so let, let's, go, let's go into the beam tool, right? And, you know, let, let's actually step back for a minute and, and talk about why would we be interested in, in carbon emissions altogether, right? And uh, I think one, one good place to start with that is to recognize that when we look at the planet, it has all kinds of systems, right? All, just like the body has circulatory system and the digestive system and the respiratory system has always, so does the planet, right? It's got the solar cycle, the magnetic cycle, the water cycle, it's got the atmospheric minerals cycle, that's nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, if I remember right, there's the rock cycle, there's the cycle of our tides, right? There's just, the earth is this living ecosystem of ecosystems. And one of the cycles is the carbon cycle. And we're, we're quite uh, powerful as a species in affecting that one. And so there's, well, and it's natural to want to protect ourselves. So that's fundamentally what's happening. We're doing carbon accounting is we're trying to say as a species, is this a threat? And the answer seems to be coming back resoundingly. Yes. And you know, how much, what should we do about it? That's where we are. So you guys developed well, I don't know if you guys developed. So the Builders for Climate Action developed the BEAM tool. And so we're going to start with Builders for Climate Action, but BEAM, 
I hate undefined acronyms. It doesn't mean beam like structural beam. It's an acronym for BEAM and it's, it's building, oh, I should know, building emissions accounting method model. Materials for, um, for materials. Yeah. Please tell, me, please tell me what does beam stand for and how did <laughs> BFCA get started? Yeah. So yeah, builders for climate action started. So I, I mentioned that I had, you know, started poking around into embodied carbon, um, yeah. 2011, 2012. And it was around 2016, I said to my partners at the Endeavor Center, hey, I think I want to like, really get into this, like, if this, if I want to figure this out, I need some focused attention put onto it. And so they very generously said, sure, we'll support you in going back to school and uh, doing this, you know, master's degree here in Peterborough. That's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. So I kind of like I kept working. I was still teaching, uh, but I sort of you know let go of some responsibilities there in order to do this master's. And so, at the end of the master's thesis in 2019, I had this really interesting report that kind of showed that you know I took the same two buildings, a, a single-family residence and a and an eight-unit uh, multi-family building, and uh, and actually Jacob, you know supported that project by doing all the energy modeling for the sort of, you know, operating emissions mm -hmm. side. So known each other. Yeah. yeah. Excuse me. So, yeah. You know each other for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years or so. Uh, okay. So please, yes, keep going. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the project, I had this thing and it was like, oh, I could take this exact same building that meets the exact same performance standards. And depending on what materials I use to make the building, it could either have embodied carbon emissions that were massive and like dwarfed the operating emissions for decades, or, you know, anywhere from that to, I could build this building in a way where it is a net storer of carbon. And so the, wow. like, from the owner's point of view, you know, the building would kind of, it would look the same, it would perform the same, meet the building codes, do, you know, all of these things that we want buildings to do. And yet the outcome from the embodied carbon side could be, there was just this huge range of possibilities. And wow. the, the ones, the models that I was making that had higher embodied carbon happened to use a lot of materials that are really common, you know, lots of concrete, lots of foam insulation, you know, lots of uh, vinyl products and, you know, things like that. And, and so I had this really exciting set of results that I wanted to talk about out in the world. And so Builders for Climate Action was really a way to frame that thesis, make it less of an academic exercise and sort of aim it more at the building community and say, we found this, like, <laughs> we think this is important. What do you think? And, uh, and so it really, it really kind of took off from there. Um, it so was a Initially, it was a project of the Endeavor Center. Through the pandemic, the Endeavor Center didn't emerge out the other side of the pandemic, but Builders for Climate Action did. So that you know, part of that is the Beam tool. So the Beam tool was really people were looking at these results that I was presenting from the thesis and and sort of saying, "How did you do that? Like, what tool did you use to do that?" And my answer was. Well, I made this goofy spreadsheet for myself. You know, I assembled all the data and I got all these answers. And you know, there was an urge for pe other people wanting to do that. And so, uh, with uh, Jacob and my partner Jen and and a colleague uh, Eric Bowden, we kind of like 
took my incredibly clunky spreadsheet that had all the right stuff but wasn't really uh, usable and and figured out how to turn it into something that other other people could use. That's fantastic. So what does BEAM stand for? <laughs> building Emissions Accounting for Materials. Okay, Building Emissions Accounting. Yeah. It's not exactly smooth, but we like the name, so it... Uh, no, I like it. Yeah. And I just want to point out, like, emissions, it's really building emissions of pollutants, and pollutant meaning that it impacts a living system or living ecosystem negatively. So if otherwise, it would just be a substance, right? And we wouldn't yeah. care. So carbon is, an, is a pollutant, you know, as far as many of the planetary cycles that I mentioned earlier. And so... Jacob, you were involved early on, or you were you were involved to to clean up and expand this spreadsheet? Yeah, no, I, I've Chris and I've been nerding on this stuff really for a long time. I think we first met in the middle of the aughts when I was working at Yestermorrow and the Endeavor Center was um, mm. was cruising, and we were sort of connected as educators. And then, um, yeah, I remember us being at a natural building colloquium somewhere in like the early 20 teens and like trying to pull together some numbers around some of this early like impact you know uh, uh, like material impacts to reflect back to our natural building community some of the value of this so yeah as chris mentioned i i helped with the energy modeling side of his thesis and then um uh once you know chris was really maturing that database into a real tool um i was really thrilled and excited just to yeah, kind of help support the development of that having um kind of been riding sort of shotgun or sort of alongside through the through the thesis work and uh, we had a really powerful moment in um 2019 chris and ace mccarlton and i gave a keynote at uh, the nessie building energy conference and so nessie is the northeast sustainable energy association here in the um in the northeast and they have a really big conference in boston every year we had published an, uh, uh, a article in their magazine the prior year saying hey embodied carbon this is the thing we should we should think about this and then they invite us to do the keynote the following year and we had this really like overwhelming degree of um, sort of reception. It was a very big aha moment and kind of light bulb moment for uh, many folks within that community um, and really kind of put, took embodied carbon out of the like ethers of like this sort of nebulous concept of a thing that is out there into like, we like the time is now, this all coincided with the IPCC's report back in 2018 really calling the building industry to task and really identifying the need for urgent action. So the, the energy was all right around that. And um, Chris mentioned um, like getting a lot of reception and interest of people wanting to know kind of, hey, what do we do next? Um, like, how, you know, where can we get this, where can we get this tool? Um, that, that keynote led for such a strong amount of demand from that community that, that you know, Ace and I were hearing because we're pretty embedded within the Nessie community. Um, that it gave a good opportunity for us to kind of get back with Chris and like, yeah, no, people are like actually really like if we could do a thing here, this would be a really good thing. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was sort of like my angle in and the, the genesis of that um, was trying to, yeah, help support yeah. bringing this information into the hands, particularly into the hands of um, smaller firms working on smaller projects. I and mean, I think that's one of the like the real mm -hmm. spaces that we developed. I think there's there's two really big things that Beam was developed to do because it was not the first material carbon estimator. Certainly, you know, there's a, a whole life cycle assessment kind of world out there already. Yeah, 
Yeah, so we weren't like the first people to do this by a long shot, but as is common with a lot of technology and intellectual property, the residential sector sort of like, you know, trails along the resources that are afforded towards the uh, more lucrative sectors or the larger buildings or the more sort of powerful and resourced sectors of our industry. And we had like this entire community of of designers and builders that didn't really have tools designed for their access, that didn't have large engineering soft costs to do custom level research on a per project basis and didn't have tool sets that were aligned with the way that they're running out their bills of materials and organizing the development of their projects. Um, so there was a there was a need there. There was also a need with Chris and I both coming from this this background of working with natural materials and really seeing the value and potential of, of particularly carbon storing bio-based materials um, that was just totally unrecognized and, and either unrepresented or like highly underrepresented in other tools. Um, and you mentioned the carbon cycle. I think that's the thing that I get the most like stoked about is seeing this, putting this within the context of cycles. Like when I do pres presentations and lectures on this, on this content, I almost always start with looking at the global carbon cycle because we tend to have this very like antagonistic relationship with carbon and think of it like the war on carbon and like carbon is bad. And you mentioned it as a pollutant, yeah. which it absolutely is in, in excess concentration. You know, water is a pollutant in excess concentration in, in environments. And so I, I get excess concentration. Yeah. And, I, and looking at the carbon cycle, like, oh my God, we have this like phenomenal opportunity to intervene positively within that cycle to accelerate the elements of the cycle, which migrate excess concentrations of carbon in the atmosphere back into concentrations in the biosphere and plants and the pedosphere and soil. And so I really appreciate you referencing that sort of cycle orientation around it. And I think that's one thing I love about this tool is that by declaring bio-based storage as a, as a metric within the tool and really like exposing our methodology around carbon storage on like a per material and per line item basis and incorporating a bunch of materials that provide those carbon storage services. It sort of takes it from this like one little slice of the cycle where we see carbon is bad and we need to stop it and like allows us to enter into with, I would argue uh, or hope some humility into seeing the complexity of a global, you know, eco cycle of carbon movement and figure out how can we be a part of this as co-participants in a beneficial way. And yeah, that's a bit, that's a bit heady for like a metric tool, but that really is what happens when you get to look at both emissions and storage and see those as different ways of engaging in the carbon cycle um, on a really specific level. Right. Yeah. And I'll just say that, you know, as, as a couple of, uh, you know, really committed uh, capitalists, we, we set out to make, <laughs> a free tool that took an incredible amount of time and resource and, and, uh, and energy to make and then put it out in the world for donations. So, uh, you know, it had a really strong business case underlying it too. <laughs> <laughs> ah, sarcasm. That's good. So yeah, I think just briefly just kind of capping that it was fantastic. And I, I really, I love, I love to be corrected that it's, it's excess carbon. We absolutely need carbon. We're made of carbon. Um, but, you know, the, like the, the headliners on the carbon cycle are photosynthesis, you know, absorb CO2, release oxygen, organic material, which is where we're going to go, right? Because wood is an organic material and so are other biogenic, you know, living uh, organisms. But then there's storage, right? There's, there's many storage processes or storage in soil, storage in the oceans, storage you know, in fossils and rocks and things like that. 
And then one of the chief release elements over time has always been combustion, always been lightning strikes, always been wildfires, always been volcanoes. I guess, I don't know if that's combustion or emission, but the point is that the balance there has gone out of kilter because there's a lot of excess combustion happening. A lot of what's called anthropogenic just means human, human caused. So the beam tool, and I also want to underscore as, as an engineer that works on residential projects, the residential space does, it doesn't make the cover of the magazines very often. It doesn't get the headliners at the conferences, but it's, it's nimble. It's passionate. The triple bottom line occurs there. You know, people say, heck yeah, it feels good right here in the middle of my chest to do this right. Therefore, it's going to happen, even though it doesn't quote unquote pencil out. I mean, I really don't want to berate the commercial side, but the residential side is really where a lot of juice. And I think it's where a lot of the dynamism in our industry is currently sourced. So I kind of want to segue out of the beam discussion, but I, I do want, if one of you could describe like, like the basics of, um, gosh, how it does part of the life cycles analysis, right? P talk about that, please, sort of briefly, and then I'll move you to the next step. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, Beam is a spreadsheet tool, and the 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 information in the background of the spreadsheet is environmental product declarations, the global warming potential factors that you can find in those environmental product declarations attached to the products themselves. And the tool kind of, you know, it works by you put in a bunch of basic dimensions for your building. We want it to be very light in terms of inputs. So, you know, you kind of, I think there's a dozen basic building dimensions that you put in. We created formulas that then do material takeoffs based on those dimensions. So, you know, if you say, X square feet or square meters of exterior wall area at, you know, wood frame that 16 inches on center, we'll figure out, you know, in the tool, approximately how much wood that is. It will then reference the, the environmental product declaration for wood and tell you sort of in the tool, you know, for the amount of material you're about to use in your building, the carbon footprint and or storage of that material is this. One of the things I think that that is great about the tool is that it does it in a way that <clears throat> makes all of the answers for all of the materials in any given kind of category visible instantly. So rather than kind of like making a model by picking all of your materials and then seeing a total carbon footprint, you gotta, you're making the model of your building and then you're say going into the foundation section of the tool and you're, you're seeing like, oh, there's eight different insulation materials I could put on the outside of this foundation. And here's the carbon footprint for all of them for how much of that material I would use for this particular building. So there's sort of this instant comparison that happens. And then you basically build your model by ticking a little box and saying, you know, for this component of the building, I'm going to use this kind of concrete and this kind of insulation. And you sort of like click through all of these things and it builds you up a total. And yeah, and, uh, it really clarifies, it really simplifies. And, uh, I know you've had to make a lot of choices because, as you said, it was an incredible capitalism, uh, capitalist experience to, uh, you know, make a lot of, you know, it was more about impact experience. But really what, what the, the beam tool, it, it says, OK, we harvest these materials from the planet, we process them, manufacture them, and then they exist as building products. And hey, you, Mr. Builder, before you buy these building products, 
here's what we want you to know about their their carbon content. So it's it it stops before the building is made for these. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the beam tool doesn't in, doesn't tell you anything about emissions that it takes to get those materials to your site or what emissions might happen when you as the builder are doing things or what happens when those materials need replacing or what happens at the end of their life. Right, exactly. And we focused we focused on that, which is kind of called the cradle to gate you know, uh, assessment or A1 to A3 in life cycle assessment language, because we could find a lot of numbers to support that analysis. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a life cycle assessment, those numbers are coming from, you know, people making those materials, opening up the books of their factories and, and sort of showing uh, an auditor or an assessor, you know, what, what it takes to, to make that product. And, and that was a really great set of data. And it's also, like you said, a, a really actionable one. It's like, Hey, Hey, designers and builders, like, here's this thing. And it, it, to go any further than that in the life cycle assessment, you know, starts requiring a whole lot of assumptions for us. You know, if we're the tool maker and you want us to tell you what are the emissions of transporting that material. Yeah. I need to start making all these calls in the tool of like, am I going to do it by just saying, well, here's a factory and here's you and here's the distance. But when I started looking into that for my thesis, I found, especially in the residential sector, the supply chains are wickedly complex and like a thing that that I is made a hundred kilometers from where I live and is that product is in my local Home Depot, it didn't go from the factory to my Home Depot. And in fact, it might not have even gone from the closest factory to me to my Home Depot. You know, it went to like some big warehouse somewhere and then it got sent to somewhere else and then it went to a Home Depot logistics center, you know, in the middle of Ontario and then it got farmed out to and we just realized like the rest of this stuff, it's important. It's really important, but it's so complex and and we can't as a tool maker give you information that's gonna be particularly actionable. Like we can give you some like, well, if we make all these assumptions, here's a number for you. But you, like you're not going to change your practice based on our number. Whereas you know, I feel like with the yeah. that that cradle to gate stuff, where you're like, oh, this product and the one I could substitute for it have a ten times difference in their carbon footprint. It's like, what's the action? Choose the one with you know a tenth of the the emissions related to it. But from there, you know, you're going to have to think about where did that come from? How does it get here? did I heat my building all winter with propane or did I, you know, I mean, there's just so many variables yeah, in the whole you. rest of the life cycle that, that are important and everybody needs to think about them, but we can't, we didn't feel like we could embed meaningful yeah, yeah. information the, in a tool about it. So you're, you're promoting, I mean, let's not discount it either, right? You're, you're promoting the, the thoughtful and skillful selection of materials, right? Which is huge. Like all, everyone listening, architect, builder, owner, what you're doing is you're selecting and arranging materials so that you'll have an experience and your kids will have an experience, you know, of the planet later. And so this selection of materials, we don't need to like say, oh, well, it's, it's really just super limited. Be nice if it were more. And one day, you know, there's going to be an evolution of this. So, you know, cutting to like some of the answers, Jacob, if you could just describe like 
you've done many, many houses, you've had clients do many, many houses. Where generally, and please stay fairly high level, like where is most of the carbon going in a residential house? The foundation. If I'm um, staying high level and there's always variables, but like, yep, it's the concrete and the foundation tends to be like the number one. Um, in residential construction, we see a, a fair amount in the um, insulation as another really major driver. I'd say that's where residential and non-residential tend to split. And that's not even like really around the program of maybe large buildings and small buildings. Because in most of these smaller residences, it's a wood frame construction. You're, like, you're already in a pretty, pretty um, low carbon environment for your structure. When we're in larger buildings or more, more structurally intensive buildings, the structure tends to be like a superstructure, which would be the structure above grade would be another big category, but in residences, it tends to be relatively light unless you're framing out of metal and steel or continuing concrete for your for your superstructure. If it's small pieces of wood, um, the insulation tends to be another big driver, largely because many of the insulations used in residential construction tend ha have the capacity to be incredibly high emission. Um, XPS foams, uh, for example, are like some of the most the worst offenders, uh, closed cell spray foams. They're, those numbers are coming down, but they're coming down from being like- Yeah, and also just, just a lot of- Yeah, please jump in. I was just gonna say, and also in, in our residential buildings, the, the proportion of insulation to floor area is really high. Yeah. Like you're, yes. you know, you're making a relatively small box and every side of that box needs insulation. You make a larger building, yeah for the amount of floor area, the amount of insulation goes down. So yeah, insulation tends to be like the number two. Yeah, and, and, cladding, and cladding is pretty high up there as well for, for similar reasons, um, that surface to skin yeah. ratio. So I would say the one thing that I should say, I'm doing a bunch of research right now in mechanical, electrical, and plumbing uh, and the embodied carbon of those categories, which has been, is, is like trailing the rest of the material categories by like a good, you know, five years or so. Um, so we're finally now on the edge and Christoph, I know you're like well in this world. Um, so please feel free to extrapolate upon, you know, whatever I'm offering here, but I've been really focusing on um, how do we take the emerging data as well as emerging strategy and workflow around using this data for mechanical, electrical, plumbing, I'll refer to that as MEP division products. And again, particularly within our, our purview of smaller buildings, residential buildings, whatnot, how do we how do we get that represented in this work? Because what we're finding from so the, the research that's been done thus far is that upwards of 20, 30% of the carbon is in mechanical systems in residential spaces and just in like heating and, and cooling systems. And particularly as we are moving from a fossil based energy environment to a refrigerant based energy environment for, for all electric buildings using heat pumps, our current basis of refrigerants are incredibly high emission. We're looking at, you know, R410A is the dominant refrigerant type for heat pumps in most of these buildings. And that has um, close to 2,100 times the uh, impact as a molecule of carbon dioxide. So you get a little bit of leakage there and boom, there's your big pool of carbon in residential construction. There's no means to say that like, don't, don't use heat pumps. Like, no, yes, absolutely. Heat pumps, 100%. I'm a huge champion of renewably powered electrified 
HVAC systems. And also to your point, like where on a high level, where's the carbon? Well, one of the big places that we're finding is in the, the refrigerant um, behind these mechanical systems. So understanding how to design our mechanical systems as well as install them with refrigerant management as a core principle is, um, is another big part of that. I will say that information is not in Beam or really in any of these um, sort of standard tools yet. There's um, some tools that are emerging. MEP uh, 2040 has a great refrigerant tool. One Click LCA has just re released their tool, which is in kind of early development. And uh, we're looking to bring that into Beam in the next little bit. That's the research I'm working on right now. That's really great. I, I will resist the temptation to pivot that direction. I want to get to the forest. <laughs> but suffice it to say that refrigerant leakage it has the potential to undo a lot of the gains we're making by yes. moving away from fossil fuel-based heating. And um, yes. we can avoid that. Yep. Um, we can do much better. And in fact, I'm just about to release very soon, I guess I'm not supposed to date things, but whatever on the podcast, air, water, heat pumps, you know, talking about re reduced refrigerant volumes and yes. that unlocks the ability for buildings to be somewhat technology agnostic going forward. If I love that. As a as a hydronic nerd, I'm grateful for your leadership in that space and uh, and share that that love yeah, uh, and awesome. see that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. Uh, I actually want to stick on one more thing because something that I came up in reading and preparing for this episode, the EPA has a document called so it's an EPA SC GHG estimation, the social cost of carbon. So it's mm -hmm. EPA social cost of greenhouse gas estimation. Could you could one of you describe briefly what does that mean the social cost of carbon? What is the EPA doing there, or is this a is this something where we should avoid? No, I mean it, it's it's interesting. It's one of many approaches now. Like broadly speaking, we've identified, like you said, like you know there are these types of atmospheric pollutions that are problematic, and one of the best ways to get human beings to act on something like that is to somehow ascribe a value to it and then use financial incentives, you know, kind of tied to that value. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so the social cost of carbon is one of those. It's like if emitting, you know, X tons of greenhouse gases costs society X per ton, as you know, the EPA comes up with some numbers, people come up with all kinds of numbers, then we should somehow pay people more than that, or at least that, but that plus a little bit to not do that. And we save the money that those carbon emissions would have cost us in, you know, they're, they're looking at things like, you know, wildfire damage, floods, you know, yeah. disruptions to the agriculture system, all of these things that actually do cost us, you know, real actual dollars. They're trying to, you know, you know, make an equivalence of like tons of emissions and those costs and, and have that be a, a value that underpins, you know, a carbon market. And, you know, there are all kinds of other ways that carbon markets are trying to be started and, and, and valued, but social cost of carbon is, is one of okay. them. And it's interesting because it, it tries to be more complex than just, you know, there's, you know, molecules of this in the sky. And like, it has the, like, you know, has these like absolute direct, results it, it's more like how does it affect us broadly as a, as a like the social cost what is that yeah yeah that's good that in 
lost years of education, you know, all of that. And health impacts and health and health impacts. Yeah. And reduced. They think they call them disability adjusted life years. Exactly. And so it's interesting. I went through a lot of cycles in the beginning and I I thought back, well, what more could there possibly be in realizing those are just like planetary cycles of the natural world. There are also these human societal constructs, right? Like our economic system is a, is an ecosystem and it, it, it needs to be justified to planetary systems. And, and now we're getting into the work of Howard Odom and energy analysis, but instead, and, and just one last comment here, like it's really hard for the three of us, those of you listening, right? So each one of these little, little pixels of information, it expands into its own huge body of knowledge. And, and I think uh, you listeners, a lot of you that have been listening a long time and I know the three of us on this call, we could go down any of these rabbit holes, right? And like you said, you went in a rabbit hole, you didn't come out for 10 years, Chris. Still not out. <laughs> Sorry, that's true. You're still swimming underwater or swimming through, through the burrow. That's, yeah. And thank you for swimming. And thank you for going uh, down these rabbit holes. So, you know, you mentioned greenwashing earlier. Right now, wood is a dominant building material. And you actually very eloquently state in one of your books, Chris, like, What's up with wood being a dominant building material? It cups, twists, warps, rots, burns, you know, eat, insects eat it. And yet it's it's somehow like considered to be normal and fine. And if someone mentions hempcrete, it's like, that's crazy. And so, but I want to start, you know, there's just, there's this idea of start where you are. If you want to go on a journey, you need to start where you are. And where we are, particularly in residential construction, is wood frame buildings, right? Which, which and in general, Wood can be good, but what's happening is a little bit like greenwashing, in my opinion, like, oh, it's wood. Oh, it's good. And so that's where I kind of want to dig in for a while here. And then and then we'll come back for the, the Builders for Climate action at the end here. So wood is a material that comes out of this carbon cycle. It's produced. It's a by photosynthesis, basically. And in that sense, it is a carbon sequestered it it is sequestering carbon but it's not so simple it's not it's not quite as simple as that and um i guess i'd like to try to unpack how it's not so simple but unpacking how it's not so simple is not so simple (laughs) so let's try to start with a simple question with seemingly simple question and you guys can like jump ball here when exactly did the carbon get removed from you know the atmosphere like when, when does that happen with a tree growing? And then I could also say, where did it go? Or, or tell me, tell me how you would like to start talking about the carbon cycle in as it pertains yeah. to wood. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a really great place to start because <laughs> albeit hard. Know, one of, one of the questions that 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 you know we had in trying to decide you know how to value any carbon that is stored in wood. So. I guess just to be really clear, you know, there's at no point do we ever say there's no carbon stored in wood. I mean, they're like, it's a physical thing, you know, yeah. X, you know, pounds of wood has X pounds of carbon, you know, atoms in it. That's not, that's not really a question, but yeah, your question about when did they c- come into that, you know, that tree yeah. from, from the moment its little seed split in the ground and it started to photosynthesize. And so, you know, if you, if you cut down a 50 year old tree to make building materials out of, there's 
carbon that was from the atmosphere everywhere from 50 years ago until the moment you cut it down. And you know, you the amounts vary, you know, by where the tree is in its growth cycle. Obviously, when the tree is like an inch tall, it's not absorbing, you know, thousands of pounds of carbon. <laughs> it's uh, but, you know, so through its growth cycle, there's sort of a, a curve of, of the, the carbon that it, that, it, that it brings in. But, you know, that, that question of when is really important because, you know, if we want to value carbon stored in a building, not just as a number of carbon atoms, but as a climate intervention, you know, is it helpful to have a whole bunch of carbon that came out of the atmosphere over the last 50 years in my building because the climate is in the situation it's in right now, right. despite that having happened. Like, <laughs> you know, we, ha we have the, the overabundance of CO2 in the atmosphere, despite the fact that the tree I just cut down has been absorbing CO2 for 50 years. So it's, it's sort of like this, this backwards looking way of, of accounting for carbon that, that I think if you, if you're thinking in a systems way and thinking, am I intervening in a positive way to affect the climate, putting a bunch of decades old carbon in your building, you know, hasn't changed the, the balance of CO2 in the atmosphere and without, and that's without us even starting to look at, well, you, you cut down a tree that was going to continue absorbing CO2 for a while. So you, you've actually eliminated a, a carbon storage and you're only going to put a fraction of the carbon that that tree did draw out of the atmosphere in your building, you know, and again, the rates vary for like how much, how much of a tree makes it into a building. It's not a high percentage, but let's just say 50% of the volume of that tree turn, makes it into the building. The other 50% went back to the atmosphere or is about to go back to the atmosphere. And so if I put say 50 tons in my building, but 50 tons went into the atmosphere so that I could put those 50 tons in my building again, I didn't really do anything for the climate. So, I mean, that's just a good toe in the water of all the complexities when you're, when you're thinking about, about forests and, and wood products. Yeah. Yeah. Jacob, the other two questions that, um, kind of like, Building off of what, because Chris is just sort of mapping out there that go along with that, like the to Chris to to Chris's point that like re, like the backward looking um, time frame of the storage of carbon over the length of the time of that tree. There's the what else would have happened where if I didn't cut that tree down that we call the counterfactual scenarios, yes. and that's another like really critical question because it depends on the tree, it depends on the forest, it depends you know there's like that's a that's a big it depends that gets pretty regionally and even species specific. The other question that kind of speaks to this piece of you know what about the other parts of the tree are what about the other parts of the ecosystem because there's this very dynamic relationship between the carbon within the tree and the aerial parts of the sort of the biosphere that that carbon is entrained in and the pedosphere the soil layer and some of that uh carbon can cycle not into the atmosphere but down into the soil and and have a have a a, a viable storage mechanism there that supports biodiversity and and soil health and ecosystem ecosystem health um, or there's a version where all that soil is sort of denuded and eroded and um, oxygenated through uh, you know being churned up in forest practices so on and so forth so like 
just to, just to amplify further or like or, or bring a little more you know um, detail into those complexities. Some of the other questions of what else would happen are a batch of questions and what else is happening. Recognizing that you can't just look at the tree in isolation, you really do have to look at the forests as well. And there is there's a micro and macro kind of tacking that needs to happen and trying to wrap our heads around this that some of it is on the tree level but some of it is also very much on the ecosystem level and not all forests are the same and not all species are the same and so what else might have happened from the atmosphere's perspective will vary depending on what you are cutting or not cutting well said yeah it's it's the ultimate and probably the most poignant version of this saying uh, not seeing the forest for the trees <laughs> You get to yeah, use that a lot. Forests are different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so actually, you know, you've just brought us right there. So thank you. Actually, I had a list of questions, you guys, uh, and you just went through all of them without me saying anything. So yay. <laughs> and so where we've arrived at is... Um, well, what are we to do, right? We, we need to evaluate the health of the forest or the management practices um, of the forest. And not all forest management practices are created equal. And, and just, so let, let's talk about forest management practices. And just so you know where we're going next is, you know, wood is not the only biogenic building material that's out there. News to you guys. No, code key. So um, let's start at the biggest level. What are the leading forest management um, practice evaluations or something. I know there's FSC is one. Um, are there two more or one more main one? Please just start there. What are we comparing with forest management practices? Either one. So there's two main certification programs in North America, uh, FSC and SFI. FSC, they're both global certification programs and they've got sort of, they, they, have different uh, manifestations in different regions. And so um, SFI is actually part of a much larger body of certifi uh, certification programs that shows up differently in different, um, in different contexts or different, different areas. Uh, SFI is more deregulated in how it's managed from region to region than FSC is. So for example, and forgetting the acronym, I can, I can look it up that the, the, the parent sort of organization that SFI is a part of, their practices in Europe hold different standards than the ones in the United States. In the US, SFI tends to be more industry regulated and sort of self-regulated, if you will. Um, FSC tends to have more of a third party sort of regulatory structure than SFI does in North America. And so for that reason, FSC tends to be uh, held as a higher standard of, of sort of outcome if for no other reason the fact that it's third party administrated um, more more sort of comprehensively. I think there's some pretty significant differences in the metrics and standards within those programs. I don't have enough knowledge to speak to those details uh, particularly. But FSC sort of held as the gold standard of forest management programs in the United States currently. Having said that, there's a whole host of liabilities and challenges and FSC certification actually has a bunch of different types. There's the certification of the forest itself. FSC also has chain of custody certification, which validates the wow. wood supply chain coming out of that managed forest and making its way all the way through the supply chain back to your, your building. So for example, in a project I was involved with not 
too long ago. They're looking to use, um, uh, I think it was a mass timber application, and they would have had to have the FSC certified wood coming out of Quebec. This is in Vermont, so pretty close to us. Would have had to be trucked down to a manufacturing facility in Texas, I believe, somewhere, somewhere very far away for processing, and then trucked back mm. to Vermont to maintain the chain of custody certification to ensure that, that wood isn't getting mixed up with 90% of other non-FSC wood. And then you're getting this like mixed commodity product that you can't really check. So the, the forest certification has an element and an element that's around sort of industry supply chain and sort of inventory management. Um, I will say that FSC from a carbon standpoint looks at many elements that directly relate to uh, the carbon cycle. So it's looking at erosion and soil health. It's looking at biodiversity and um, uh, all the sort of factors of ecosystem health that directly relate to this. But they are not taking inventories of carbon or carbon dioxide flows into or out of the system as a metric that they're evaluating for. So right now, FSC is used as a sort of proxy, if you will, for carbon smart practices, but it's not technically evaluating for that or has a metrics associated with that from the ecosystem perspective. I know that in the Pacific Northwest, there have been a number of studies looking at that and looking at the relationship between FSC managed woodlots and the carbon flows into and out of that ecosystem. Um, but it's not something right now that you can say, FSC is managing for you know carbon impact or atmospheric carbon balance, and therefore there's a direct association. It's saying this is the best standard we have in North America right now to validate um, sort of ecosystem supportive forest management practices, in, including all these you know those factors I mentioned earlier, which have a direct relationship to uh, the forest role in the carbon cycle. Um, and that sort of proxy is as good as we get right now, um, as well as I, as I can't reinforce enough the importance of that sort of supply chain side and the chain of custody side of that, because wood is a commodity product. And it is very non-trivial to ensure that the wood that you want to get from a, a certain forest is actually making it into its final product form delivered to the project site. Um, I actually took that for granted for a long time. I started my building career literally cutting down my own oh, trees and building my own house. And then, oh boy, was it eye-opening to realize how what a very, very small anomaly that is and, and how incredibly complicated it is to actually get good sourcing, um, even if the origin source is coming from a good place. Wow. Okay, Chris, I'm going to come back to you in a second. But just since, since I had the opportunity to, to do some Googling while you were talking, FSC, Forest Stewardship Council, uh, was established in 1993 as an international nonprofit multi-stakeholder stakeholder organization promoting responsible management of the world's forests via, via certification. And then SFI, the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, was founded in 1994. I didn't realize there might be a causality in that time sequence <laughs> by the American Forest and Paper Association. And it's the largest single forest certification, but it was recognized in 2005 by this um, international forest certification, the program for the endorsement of forest, cert forest certification, PEFC. Yes. Yeah. So again, this just those two certifications could be an entire hour. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah, and, and and also one of the things that those certifications don't capture 
or that, that we miss in that is that you have to be foresting on a pretty large scale to be involved in either of those two mm -hmm. programs, right? Oh. Like there's all yeah. kinds of local foresters around me who do great work, but they're like, I can't afford a certification. Like yes. I'm wow. a, I'm a small time forester. And so, yeah, like that only the, the sort of like large end of the supply chain, which is hugely important, you know, but is being covered by that, yeah. uh, by, by any of those programs, just because it is, you know, there are costs involved and it's burdensome to have third party inspections and to have to, you know, do all the things that need to be done to get yeah. those certifications. So yeah. it does leave out, you know, uh, a chunk of the market that is probably best positioned to be doing really yes. good forestry, but exactly. least positioned to get recognized for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I'm just curious if we could just explore that so that, well, go ahead, Jacob, please. I'm bringing I, okay. mine. I wrote it down. Oh yeah, I was going to just to explore that. I mean, I, I think Chris really named like that that scale piece. I think is such a huge pattern to pay attention to, and I see that same pattern with. I think Christoph, you did such a great job of highlighting the like critical value and role and the opportunities that exist in looking at residential construction. That um, I have heard like pretty consistently, and that I scale jump in my within my practice and project types. I hear pretty consistently from the larger firms I work with and the larger projects that I'm in that like oh man, like we're really following the leadership of the innovation that's coming out of smaller projects and smaller, more innovative firms that have that flexibility and that dynamism, that ability to control those variables and can you know, you know, stack the, the priorities in, in ways that, that may not show up at this larger scale. It, I, there's such a similar analogy in the forest space. I think Chris really just named like, it is those smaller operators that can that are operating at scale that can really optimize the best sort of coordination of um, sort of foregrounding forest management practices uh, that are organized around climate resiliency. And I'm thinking I'm like now my point of reference is in the Northeast, where we had a timber industry that kept, that left decades ago, and we don't have the same scale of, of like institutionalized uh, forest product industry in the Northeast that we used to that we see in the southeastern United States or the northwestern US or western Canada. We have like amazing innovative forest products and forest management practices that are that are literally managing our forests to respond to the threats and pressures of a changing climate and these climate resiliency plans that to achieve that are producing these huge flows of material that need to be forced and need to be managed to be able to improve the stocking density and diversity and age diversity and species diversity of these forests. Those flows of resources coming out of there, there are foresters and, and millers that are coming up with amazing products using like specific species and specific types of wood that like that if I cannot think of a more appropriate wood product to utilize, but none of those folks have the overhead to have any of that fall underneath one of these conventional industry scale management programs. And I know like the New England Forest Families, Family Forest and EFF is trying to work on like a regional scale and scale appropriate program. And I know there's programs on the Pacific Northwest that are sort of working on similar regional initiatives. Um, and I think there's an issue of of just just general scale and the, the nimbleness and the ability to operate within scale and be recognized as one issue, as well as to have that scale be representative of the particular ecosystem and economic environment in which these forests are operating. So in New England, one of, if not the greatest threats to to um, forest health is land use conversion 
through the developments. That's a really different pressure in the Northeast Whoa. than you have in, say, parts of you know equatorial climates where it could be illegal logging for agricultural land conversion, or in the Northwest where it could be in industrial pressure, or in the Southeast where uh, forests are being cut to make pellets so that the European Union can meet their zero carbon energy oh. load. So there is really different pressures in these really different forested environments, both ecologically and economically. And, and that piece around scale, like I just really wanted to jump onto that because that pattern shows up again and again and again as we're trying to come up with, to your point of where we're going with this actionable solutions, um, they need to be scale responsive for it to actually be able to move at all these different levels that we need to move. Wow. That was awesome. That was very interesting and a little, little bit disheartening how hard it is you know, to do the right thing, right? The word just has been on my radar when people use, oh, just do this, or I'm just going to do this, or just for this project, we're going to use spray foam or you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, think, I think that you know, given the time situation, we should leave it there. And that, that was a really good introduction for everybody to forest stewardship practices. So thank you, gentlemen. Last topic, and we'll just do a very light touch on the action piece, um, although the three of us had a blast talking at the last conference about that. So putting wood in context, right? So you have um, sunlight and air and microbes and seeds and you grow these plants and these plants are trees and they grow big and they have long life lifespans. Ooh, I wanna interject something there. But there's, there's other plants, right? So there's other plants that have different life cycles. So starting with trees, if you guys know the numbers offhand, um, is there an optimal, gosh, I know it depends on the forest. Like you picked like the, it depends-ness, but is there, what do you think is the right life cycle? Like how long should a tree live before we could say, now is a good time to harvest that carbon and use it? Is there a straight answer there at all? Um, no. <laughs> 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 okay. Or at least, we'll, we'll make you know, a number. Pick a number and then defend it. Try. It, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted no. to defer that, not, not because like where I don't want the conversation to go is like, don't put wood in your, in your next home building project. Okay. Um, because awesome. even awesome. if you're not, <laughs> e even if it's not a carbon storing material, we use it like wood frame construction is a really efficient use of material. Like yeah. you're using very little of a material to accomplish a whole lot. And if you ignore the carbon storage side and just look at the emission side, it's like, if you look in the beam tool, it's, it's like the clear winner in terms of providing structure for small buildings. And so, you know, I think it doesn't take much to defend wood frame construction as a, as an option, even if we're saying don't count the carbon that's stored in that wood as meaningful for the climate. I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Because if you if you change that out for steel or you change it out for concrete or you know just about anything else you could use for structure, the climate results would be worse. So, you know, it's it's a fine thing to be using, even if it's not, even if we're not saying, well, it's carbon storing magic. And you know, with all the with all the the other things of like 
tried to get it FSC certified or tried to get it local, like just try to understand, you know, where it's coming from, recognize its value, you know, don't throw out six foot long pieces, you know, find somewhere else that they can go in your build, like, you know, a, a whole bunch of just really basic respect the material kind of approaches, but I would never try to talk somebody out of wood frame construction yeah, from a I climate think, point yeah, of view. That's such an important takeaway. I'm so glad you brought it up in the sense that relative to, right, concrete and steel construction, uh, <coughs> framing, structural systems, wood is a fantastic alternative. You know, things like the recent World Resources Institute, the WRI report about mass timber, notwithstanding. I mean, there are there are definitely concerns. And as a species, you know, us as a species, we need to be approaching forest stewardship intelligently. And as you say, there are small operators that currently are. And so we don't want to glass half empty this situation. Yeah. And we have to think it, it is a very different scenario to use the number of like cubic feet of wood that it takes to frame a building, you know, a one to six story building, that amount of wood compared to the amount of wood it takes to make that same building out of CLT is actually don't know the factor, but it's a big factor. Like if you make something out of solid wood versus a stick of wood every 16 or 24 inches, that's a really big difference in the amount of wood. And so, you know, I think there there are some really great things about about mass timber construction, but I also think like that like not not just because it's using a ton of wood, like you know, and that's yeah. that's the problem with saying, hey, this we can count the carbon storage in this is like the carbon storage numbers, if you just take them at face value for a piece of mass timber, are phenomenal. <laughs> like you could be like, Woohoo, look at my project. Like I just offset everything else in the building by using all of this wood, but you did use a forest's worth of wood and, you know, you're not really the implications of that versus using, you know, those, those sticks uh, in the frame, they're wildly different. Yeah. I would, I would love to jump off that and sort of maybe tie that in towards the actionability part, because I like, there's such a through line there from how we're looking at forests and resource, um, like our resource relationship with the forest to like the building level decisions we get to make. So there's a version of this where that mass timber that Chris is describing is coming from beetle kill forests at West, which, oh my God, we need to be grabbing those trees, turning them into viable building products and avoiding their incineration in the next wildfire. Like that is an example, like talking about the variability and the it depends, like, harvest all of those trees right now and turn those into the building materials that we need. But there's only so much of that. And we're looking at magnitudes of increase in infrastructural development, not just continuing to development, develop at the rate we are, but increasing the amount of development rate. So like, unless we're gonna like agree as a society and as an economy that we're going to make better use of our current resources and build less so we can have an intent higher conversation that's maybe the first order conversation, which is doing less building. Um, there's a version as to Chris's point around just respecting the resources we're using, even if they're better than other alternatives, um, just knowing that there is no zero impact. Even using that beetle kill wood, like there is a resource that needs to be utilized and we can make a justification for its profligate consumption in a mass timber building. 
But think of how many other low-rise construction projects we could do instead of building like an eight-story building, which has like an exponential demand of structural performance because of that increased height relative to how many other three-story buildings could be developed using way lower value timber products and stretch that resource over a much, you know, how many more people could be housed with that same forest product resource if we were being way more structurally efficient on the building level and on the development level. And I think that's a real issue, not just with using CLT like as a form and had like the amount of resources being used on a per occupant basis. I'm not saying it's bad and there's a use for everything, but one step further than that, like the quest for continuing to build bigger and bigger buildings with more and more material consumption like yes there's a density argument that can be made there and in certain developmental you know environments there we literally may need the density of going up those additional stories but oh my god the increased intensity of material consumption and emissions release because we're choosing to build all of these stories let alone the energy that goes into elevators and lifts and all the mechanical systems that get exponential, you know, the fan and pumping energy that goes up exponentially as well when you have to fight gravity. Like that level of strategy, we actually have some legitimate control over as designers, uh, maybe not as builders, but certainly anyone in the architectural and engineering space. And if we could ask that level of question with our mind towards stretching these resources to carry us further, like that's a really actionable point of intervention that isn't necessarily about like wood is good or don't use it at all. It's like, hey, we have resources available that are good and they're better than these others, but they're we're still needing to live within some reasonable balance here if we're going to continue to build more buildings. Oh. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um there's so much to say about that. I'm not gonna I'm just gonna uh, give a shameless plug. We did a podcast a few years back where somebody did an energy system analysis looking at local infrastructure and, and they looked at this question of height and pump energy and elevators. And it was six to seven stories, you know, it's basically Paris. Yep. And so that, that's really fascinating. And I love that you tied that in. And I, you know, I think I was a little megalomaniacal for all the topics I wanted to get on this podcast, but we've, we've, we've unearthed some really, really uh, important ideas. I mean, that one right there, just, I, I can already feel myself listening to this later and rewinding and just making sure I'm, I'm tracking with all that logic. So I think I'm going to ask you guys together to, um, you know, to try the, try to answer this then. Right. So, you know, I, I wanted to go into, you know, panelize straw bale and hempcrete and just really start, but obviously time is, is a thing here. It's real, but is it possible for you, one of you, both of you to, to say, okay, um, Thinking like the mainstream industry, installing that module in my brain, how do you build a low carbon building today? Well, I think, can I answer, can I have two streams to the answer? Please, yes. So the first stream, and it, it, I'm going to put it first because it, it, it maybe is, is a little bit counter to everything we've been saying because we've been focusing on materials, design it for disassembly. Every single part Ooh. of that building from the, the structure to the insulation to the final finishes, everything needs to be able to be removed without damaging it. So regardless of, did I choose the best drywall? Did I choose the best flooring? Like all of that kind of stuff. If that same sheet of drywall, like, you know, it got a, a, a ding in it or I want to fix the electrical or something. If I can take out 
10 screws and that sheet of drywall comes off and I do all the stuff behind it and I put it back on and I'm done and I've saved that thing. Mm. Like, so the, one of the last projects we did in Endeavor was yeah. a complete design for disassembly building. And I think regardless of what it's made out of, if every material in that building has a sort of like, you know, numbers of lifetimes because because the materials can can be dismounted i think that's huge and so i think that does lend itself to panelized construction you know when we did that building if you're going to stick a bunch of stuff together and be able to take it apart it's nice if it's not in the smallest form you know like individual sticks it's nice if it's not the whole house you know which is one way to modularize but it's hard to move around so like you know manageable sections and then if those sections right now are wood frame boxes filled with some kind of, you know, uh, residue carbon storing fiber, whether it's chopped up straw, rice hulls, hemp, cotton, cellulose, wood fiber, you know, like name the one that's close to you that you like and has all the properties and costs you like. You know, if you can if you can make a panel that bundles a bunch of that stuff up and that panel can be bolted onto the building but then taken off of the building and so can all the parts attached to it, I think that's you know that's the thing. That was excellent. Any uh, follow-up comments? You were nodding and smiling a lot, Jacob. Yeah, I think Chris nailed it. I think maybe the only other thing that I would add on there is um, this is my building performance hat on and coming from a part of the world where we have some of the oldest housing stock is we just have, we could make so much better use of our existing built infrastructure. And I think if there is a place to invest our resources, even, even some of the more carbon intensive or, or more you know, uh, sort of like resource intensive materials to keep existing buildings alive longer and in service longer. That's maybe the, uh, which is a sort of a riff on the circularity principle that Chris was mentioning. Yeah. Would be the, the, the first question is, is there another building we can utilize right now or refurbish to prove, you know, provide these same needs without having to build new? Yeah, that'd be my only other add. I love it. I love it a lot. Yeah, thank you guys. This has been really good. I th okay, I think um, we're going to start to bring it in for a landing here. And, you know, I, I can't quite give up my longing to talk about larger systems views. You know, we've, we've done it, sort of woven it in the whole time here. There's many planetary systems, ecosystems, there's these human systems, there's, you know, politics and the economic systems. And, and so, yeah, I was going to bring up sort of the Danella Meadows, you know, the systems thinking that says really focus on paradigms. Um, you introduced me to donut economics and the two loop model, and I've just been studying those ever since. It's, it's such, there's such powerful ways to look at w what we're doing when we're building a home. We're doing anything, but here we're talking about building homes as a system of systems. And I'm going to just focus on one, and you guys can close with any comments that you want. But listeners, I want all of us to re recognize that there's you doing what you're doing to provide a, a livelihood, you know, to support yourself and your family. So of course that needs to happen. And many of us listening actually have a lot of discretion in what that is that we do and how we do it. So, so this is where I'm going, which is that if you, if I view myself as I'm simply making money, then well, goodness, I could do any sorts of different things. I could sell whatever I could do, whatever, 
But if I start to think I am part of the ecosystem of human activity and my role, like, so my role is as an engineer and I specify materials and systems and equipment, but I start to think, okay, this is my role in society and my role in society exists hopefully to better society, to make it function more smoothly, to limit the amount of pain going forward. And so that's the paradigm. You know, I just like to say, if you're an architect, that is your role in society and it carries weight. And if you're a builder, that is your role. If you're a mechanical installer, that is your role. So any comments that come up, final comments, final thoughts, anything, any level, big, little, medium? Wait, I would... For a second. But you had something, Chris. I, I don't, and I felt like I was yeah. on the spot there, like the biggest, most eloquent thing. Please come up with it now. Yeah, no, it won't, it won't be that big or eloquent, but it, 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 it's, you know, what I've taken from my own career is that like, yes, you know, I've had a need to make a living and I've done that. But when you, when you try to like bite into and tackle really interesting problems while you're making that living, it makes it super fun and super interesting, you know, like yeah. to me, it's never been like, Oh, what a pain in the butt. I have to figure out now, like, not only what's the most energy efficient and healthy, but now it's like low carbon thing. I could take that as like, that sucks that I have to put that effort in. <laughs> but for me, it's like, this is great. Like, <laughs> I need to learn more, think more, do more to like figure this out. And it keeps, it keeps what I do for a living really engaging. And I guess it's that, that maybe just a little shift of like, these, these things aren't, aren't pain points or aren't, you know, hassles, like they could also be these really rewarding kind of problems that you engage in and, and solutions that you, you kind of forge. Well said. Jacob, I love you got anything that. like that? Unsurprisingly, Chris and I have like really similar uh, <laughs> like approaches there. Um, I mean, I have a very similar consideration. I'm going to sort of relate it to the systems level consideration that that you were sort of posing here. Um, we are part of these complex systems and we can either act intentionally with that like understanding and knowledge or or not. And we hold the same power and influence whether we hold intention around that or don't. Uh, it's not like design, like you can design something intentionally or you can design it by accident because you didn't think about it in advance. And so when I think about the relationship, you know, to impacting climate change uh, from the builder or designer engineers, um, you know, perspective, I generally see two reactions uh, and, and Chris provided like the third, which is a good one. The two reactions I think are more, um, sort of uh, less productive or more toxic. One is that this is too overwhelming, this is too much, or like, it's not within my purview, or like, I'm just here for the money, or like, eh, no, I can't deal with that, which is the like ignoring and ceding your responsibility and the power you hold for the decisions that you make and being part of these systems. The other is like being weighted down by the burden and the obligation and the sort of martyrdom complex of not being able to solve all of these problems and feeling powerless and feeling disempowered and seeing you're a part of the problem but not being capable of actually making the change and which is the sort of equal and opposite outcome of sort of disenfranchisement and this very you know, sort of debilitating energy around the work. And um, I really like totally resonate with what Chris is saying. Like 
we have power and opportunity within our spheres of realm and influence that we exist in within these larger systems. And knowing that and seeing where that is gives us these opportunities for play and creativity and smaller wins and larger wins and just a thousand points of engagement and relationship with the people around us, the chemicals around us, the materials around us, the human and non-human species around us that coming at it with that, like from that place of joy and opportunity, I think is the, the best space in which we can make decisions that can optimize the power and roles that we have in these larger patterns of relationship. Um, and also it's the only way we're gonna sustain it without getting sick or dropping out or burning out or um, you know, uh, the sort of unwinding our like, you know, human experience in this. Um, so yeah, that would, that would be my like nexus point of, yeah, just find the joy, what Chris said. Gentlemen, you leave me speechless. This doesn't usually happen. Yeah, thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. I think that's a great place to leave it. I mean, there's so much more. There's so much that you just said, though, both of you. And I feel truly full-hearted, warm-hearted that we recorded this and that it's going out into the world. So thank you again. And uh, listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you.